Hello and welcome. Today we begin a brand new season of Zen Mind, a podcast featuring talks from Zenki Deloroshi, the guiding teacher at Boulder Zen Center here in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Brian Coley. I'm at VZC. If you're a regular to the podcast, I just want to welcome you back after the winter break. And if you're new, then I'm glad you found us. In this season, which will run through the end of September, Zenki Roshi will focus on exploring ways in which to make Zen practice work in daily life circumstances. These talks are given live every other week on Saturday mornings, and they're posted to the podcast the following Wednesday. So you're welcome to join online for the live talks. Nice thing about that is we have a Q&A session afterwards where anyone can ask a question uh, or just listen to uh, the other questions that come in. So for a calendar of all the Dharma talks and other events happening here at Boulder Zen Center, go to our website, boulderzen.org. So we're looking forward to sharing this new season of Zen Mind with you. And let's get started. Here's Zanki Roshi. Good morning. Thank you all for being here. Yeah, that's what we do over Zoom. <laughs> yeah, um, thank you all for coming. And um, I, before we start, uh, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, I was uh, not giving talks for a month. Um, we just finished this winter practice course. That was eight weeks, January and March, and 60 people participated, and I wasn't giving these um, uh, public talks. And then uh, my wife, Sophie, just uh, gave birth to a baby boy, so that happened. And uh, I was taking a little break. And now um, I'll go back to this biweekly Saturday pattern that um, that we have, and the the talks will be on the podcast again for you know I think ten talks, and then we'll start another course in the fall. Also, um, you know, you probably heard the CDC um, issued new guidelines regarding vaccination and gathering, so. I think uh, by mid-May, we will open the Boulder Zen Center for everyone who has the vaccine, which is now available. Um, and we'll start uh, sitting together in the morning if you want to come, um, you know, bring your vaccination card. <laughs> but we'll also, uh, as a big lesson from this pandemic, we'll uh, transition our programs into a kind of hybrid um, format where people who are participating remotely can continue to participate remotely. So that uh, is going to be the next step and we'll inform you. And then uh, also our guest rooms are uh, finished now. We will put our offering online. Uh, that means you know, people can stay with us as just regular guests when they come to Boulder. But if you would like to visit and spend some time here and join our practice schedule, you uh, you can do that too. And th that will be uh, online um, or we'll inform you about that soon. Okay.
Um, I was wondering what to talk about. And uh, there's a lot in my mind. And I thought, well, maybe I can find some sort of arc for in these next 10 talks. And I know I failed <laughs> to some degree. And then I thought, oh, I'll talk about five things. I'll talk about, you know, discipline and zazen and study and, you know, and then I thought, no, that, that's not going to work. So um, I want to uh, talk about discipline. And I want to kind of uh, talk about uh, it, you know, in my mind, it's called like a fresh look at discipline. <laughs> And it's rooted in conversations that I have with practitioners where people are telling me, you know, it's, uh, how do I, how do I keep my practice alive in, you know, my daily circumstances? And, uh, I've had this uh, experience with this retreat or this practice course that we've done. And, and how do I continue? It's a very common question. Because there is uh, this, a certain dichotomy appears in our practice lives between, you know, an intensive that you do or a particular inspiration that you have or experience and then your daily routine. And uh, my feeling is that discipline isn't a particularly attractive word. You know, I'm generalizing, you know, some of you may have a very positive relationship to discipline, but yeah, it can be kind of unattractive, like unattractive, like, um, you know, you are a kid in school and the teacher tells you that you really have to sit up straight and pay attention for the entire lesson. And it's nice outside and you want to go have fun, but you're supposed to solve more math problems. Like that. You know, discipline, when, when we have an understanding of discipline in this way, it doesn't get us very far. Yeah, you know, you start to obey maybe what the teacher wants you to do. Okay, I'll stay and do the math problem, but then I go play and have fun outside. <clears throat> So I think when I um, think about it, it's like when the screen just went off. I can't see it. Right, there's nothing on the screen. Yeah. Okay. I don't see anything. Were you able to hear that? I don't know. I couldn't see you. Okay. <laughs> We're back. Um, so, when I analyze this, you know, I just gave this example of you're in school and the teacher's voice. <coughs> it's like, if your discipline comes from the outside, it's hard to uh, uphold it. 
And uh, it comes to you like, you know, I should be doing this. Or you exercise some willpower. You say like, okay, I'm going to make a schedule for myself. I'm going to really see this through now. Um, then it's like you've externalized your motivation to practice and uh, you're telling yourself that it's something you're supposed to do. So it doesn't work very well. I heard, uh, just recently I heard a psychiatrist who's also a, a mindfulness teacher who works with addiction and anxiety. I heard him on a podcast, Judd Brewer, who wrote books on addiction and anxiety. He, um, he said, willpower is overrated. <laughs> and uh, I agree. I mean, it's like this trouble that you know with New Year's intention or any kind of uh, plans that you make in your mind about how you want to uh, live a different life. So what's the crux here? Now, first of all, let me say the way maybe we can take a fresh look at discipline is that discipline is our own ability to hold an intention over time. That's really what discipline is. But this intention has to be your intention. It has to be a deeply, I'm saying has to be, that's actually wrong. When your intention is a deeply held intention, discipline will unfold in your life. <clears throat> kind of naturally, not with a should. There's a deep longing or wanting to follow through with this intention from which discipline then unfolds. So I, I was working with this uh, woman for a while um, who told me, okay, I, and she, you know, she's the mother of four kids and she has a full-time job in a nonprofit organization. And she said, uh, you know, I discovered mindfulness practice and uh, I'm, I'm listening to uh, an app and it's giving me these wonderful tips about stress reduction and uh, how mindfulness can, you know, help me uh, feel more uh, grounded and relaxed and etc. You understand? So then she said, it's terrible. It just feels like another chore. It's like now I'm adding 15 minutes of mindfulness chore to my other chores. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, stop there. You know, it's like, uh, tell me about, uh, tell me about what really satisfies you in my life, in your life. What, what is the source of deep satisfaction for you? And then she paused and she sort of checked in with herself and said, I don't know. I don't know. She, uh, she said, uh, I grew up in a family and the, the mantra of the family was 
Life is hard and you just have to get on with it. And I said, okay, I, I, I see. And it's like, okay, so is there, I try to be more fine grained, you know, it's like, is there something, a thing or an activity that gives you real satisfaction? And then she said, she kind of burst out. She said, water. So I said, uh, okay, so maybe just stop doing your mindfulness practice and uh, see if you can spend time with water. Just because you want to. And she said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll try. So, you know, two weeks uh, later, I, I talked to her and she said, yeah, it's, uh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I don't have to do this chore anymore, the mindfulness chore. And uh, I do, you know, I am, I am uh, going to the ocean now and, you know, like that. <clears throat> so... So there's this one thing I want to keep in mind. I'll come back to it. You know, this idea of satisfaction. But there was another thing that I observed in her example. is like she was trying to solve a problem with her practice. She was feeling stress. And she was using mindfulness. She was trying to use these mindfulness practices to solve the problem of stress in her life. So... You know, there's all these studies now that mindfulness helps alleviate stress. There's mindfulness-based stress reduction techniques, etc. And uh, I'm not denying any of this, but it was, there was like there was her orientation. I'm going to do this practice to solve this problem in my life, and it all it created a certain kind of impatience. It's like I'm doing this practice now but it's not helping me quickly enough. So you can see for yourself if that's true for you at all. If you are using your practice to solve a problem in your life, you can investigate whether this is, um, you know, a good approach. My suggestion would be, it's like we can start to uh, explore whether you are employing your practice within a general problem orientation. There's something wrong with my life. There's something wrong with the world. And I want to practice to fix this. <clears throat> or whether you can shift and look at your practice more in terms of, um, hmm, well, I want to say, yeah, let's just use the word satisfaction again, uh, as a practice that is rooted in satisfaction. So I want to tell you, um, to illustrate that, I want to tell you, some personal examples. 
I started practicing when I was in my mid-twenties, and I had a pretty busy mind, kind of anxious. You know, not like anxious, anxious, but lost, anxious, sort of like, what do I do? And I was also a little bit depressed. <clears throat> Again, not clinically depressed, but not fully alive, you know, like uh, not applying my energy very um, well, not with, not with direction. And then um, I was in the Bay Area, and then somebody, it was really by accident, invited me to go to this Zen center and uh, I got meditation instruction, you know, like a program like we're having now. It's like weekend, you go, you get some Zazen instruction, you sit for 40 minutes and then there's a lecture. And so this was my first time meditating. And people just say, you know, sit cross-legged, keep your spine upright, um, pay attention to your breathing, like that. And um, I remember that I had some difficulty. I remember that there was pressure, like, not to move, and people were expecting me to move a certain way in the Zendo. That was, that's one rem memory I have. The other memory I have is that I felt my body differently in this still sitting, notably different. No? And if I had to describe it, I felt like I I didn't have to apologize for my body, for my, for my physical presence, something like that. <clears throat> I was just there. It's like whatever was going on in my mind, I was just there. It was okay to just sit and be there. It's not like all the tensions in my body were resolved and, you know, the practical, all the practical problems in my life were solved. It was just this very simple feeling. It's like, I can sit here and be unapologetically present. And that's kind of my original Zazen experience. <clears throat> so I'm telling you this because a lot has happened for me over the last 25 years in terms of how I've developed my Zazen experience. Uh, there's a lot I can say about it now. <laughs> but it's anchored in this fundamental feeling of like, I can be unapologetically present. And how that unfolds in so many different ways in my life now. So Zazen 
for me, my zazen practice is rooted in this kind of satisfaction. <clears throat> it may be different for you, right? It's like, I'm not saying that you should be feeling this. I'm asking you, what are, what are you feeling in your zazen practice that keeps you coming back to the cushion? Is there something? Now, if it's not something grand or heroic, you know, maybe it's just like with what I asked this woman, you know, so, but what is this? What is, is there something in your life that does give you satisfaction? And she says, water, you know, what's the water of your zazen practice? Okay, there's another story from my early practice days. So I'm in San Francisco, and then eventually, you know, I thought, like, okay, so I should do a little um, residential stay at the San Francisco Zen Center. So I did. And as it's common in Zen centers, you know, you do some morning meditation, and then there's a work meeting, and then you get some cleaning chore. And uh, the chore that I got the day that I'm telling you about was to clean all the the handrail and the balusters of the stairs that go up the San Francisco Zen Center from the from the basement all the way to the top. Okay, so I got a rag and I'm like cleaning all this, and you know. There were maybe 40 people at the work meeting, so they had a pretty big workforce. You know, not like we at the Boulder Zen Center, you know, four people, and we're barely keeping the clean uh, the place clean. No, the place is clean. You know, and then I was supposed to clean the handrail and the balusters, and I'm like, there's this mind that starts coming up in me. It's like, what am I cleaning this for? This is clean. It's crazy. Anyway, it's a very typical Zen story. I mean, it could be could be happening in Japan or something, but it happened to me. You know, I wasn't primed. It's just like, what am I doing here? Okay, so that was one chore I had. And then the second one was go outside and clean the doorknob of the main entrance door, which is a brass doorknob. It's still there. And I got this little brass cleaner and another rag, and I was supposed to clean it. So I had already built up this mind of like, geez, there's nothing to clean here. Then I go outside, clean this doorknob, and um, it was the same thing. The doorknob was perfectly fine. You know, I didn't need more cleaning. Um, okay, so, but I did it, because, you know, I follow instructions, so I did it, and then... This is a little cheesy, maybe, but it happened. So I stepped away from the doorknob, and at that time, the sun came up over the building, which is across the street, and found its way through the tree, and just, like, the doorknob exploded with light, you know, the brass doorknob, just freshly polished. It was like, whew. It's this reflection, right? Uh, I stepped back, and it's like, wow. You know, it's just a physical sensation. And the insight that I had was, oh, that's what this is about. 
You know, you give attention to something, and when you give attention to something, it invites this serendipitous beauty to appear. <laughs> That's how I'm talking about it now. But look, it's like it stayed in my mind. It was a real experience, and it is a source. Uh, it animates, it continues to animate my mindfulness practice. When you give attention to something, like which, which is packed into the cleaning, you're opening the world for this serendipitous beauty to appear. That's the lesson that I learned in that moment. I feel that way every time I clean, you know, to some extent. Or if I find, if I, if this resistance builds up that I experienced when I was cleaning the handrail on the baluster, it is in dialogue with this other insight that is about how cleaning is giving attention and inviting a different kind of aliveness. So I think in contrast to this woman that I reporting about that Mindfulness is just a chore. It's rooted here also in uh, a certain kind of satisfying experience. Okay, I'll give you a, a third example. Yeah, I, I, so I'm, I've, I've started to sit. Zazen regularly, every day. Kind of this, my experience with wanting to be unapologetically present was strong enough that I felt motivated to buy myself a cushion and start sitting meditation every day. This is inspired, you know, the next 25 years of my life. Uh, after sitting for, you know, some years, eight, ten years. I recognize, you know, I used to do quite a bit of physical activity sports when I was a teenager. And so I recognized, well, it would be good to have some sort of body practice. <clears throat> Movement, in addition to sitting, could be helpful. So just with my mind, with my thinking mind, I heard things like, you know, it would be maybe good to have a yoga practice. So I tried. If I look back, you know, I would say, I've tried probably for a decade to have a meaningful yoga practice. And I failed. This is the truth. <laughs> I just, I just couldn't develop the discipline. You know, my mind was saying, yeah, I should. But my body, every time it was time to do yoga, it's sort of like, uh, you know, I don't want to, no. Well, then I, I would do it sometimes, you know, but it's not satisfying. 
So look, when you're in a situation like this, it's like there's various, <laughs> there's various, uh, thought patterns that go through your mind. It's like, yeah, it's not the right yoga practice or the teacher isn't the right teacher for me. I don't like the way she's doing it this way. You know, if it was a different teacher, maybe it would work better or, uh, I just don't have the time. It doesn't fit into my schedule. There's other things that are more important. You know, maybe if I didn't have to work so much, I could have a yoga practice. Or, you know, or maybe just there's something wrong with me. I'm just not made for yoga. You know, like that. That's, that could be the reason. <laughs> well, um, the way this resolved itself for me was um, a friend of mine told me about this Qigong teacher she had in town and she was doing this Qigong practice and she was sing singing the praises of the teacher and the practice and I um, I heard it, you know. But, you know, I, I was supposed to have a yoga practice, so, you know, I just heard that. But one point, I um, I don't know how it happened. It just happened. I gave the guy a call and said, can I make an appointment with you? I'd like to learn about the practice that you do. And a friend told me about it. So I went and he showed me some exercises. And I took them home. And the remarkable experience with this Qigong practice for me was I would call this now, like the word I want to use is, there was an energetic nourishment in these exercises that, wanted, that I just wanted to do them. Now, I don't have an, I don't have a, um, I don't have an explanation for it. Maybe I had come to a certain point in my life, certain energetic development that allowed me to appreciate these exercises a certain way that they actually fit my developmental stage or something. Or maybe, you know, it's not a flowy Qigong practice. It's very vigorous. It's like, so maybe it's suiting me in a particular way. It's, it's very, very uh, vigorous. Yeah. Intense breath practices. <clears throat> Very precise movements. So maybe it's just suiting me, but it's all beside the point. What I want to convey to you is I had the experience that there was energetic nourishment coming from the practice. And so I wanted to do it. The practice, unlike the yoga practice that I tried to do for 10 years, was rooted in satisfaction. And so then, from that, discipline unfolds. So I'm speaking to you this way because I assume that the reason you're here, or the reason that you are interested in meditation is because there is this water experience, you know, this nourishment experience, that satisfaction experience somewhere in your practice. 
And I wonder if you are struggling at all with discipline. If you're not, then, you know, this talk is maybe not for you. Um, if you struggle at all with discipline, it's like, can you make a connection to that um, original satisfaction, this original nourishment? Forget about, you know, I should be sitting for 40 minutes or I should be doing intensive practice. This isn't, these are ideas, They're like ideas the way I had about yoga. I should, I should really have a yoga practice. Maybe your practice will unfold in this direction. Maybe uh, you are finding out that a certain kind of intensifying of practice now and then really helps. It's like, you know, I really, I really derive a lot of satisfaction from hiking in the mountains. You can, I can basically do it any time, and I find satisfaction in it. That's kind of good to know because if I want to do something satisfying, I could just go to the mountains and hike. <laughs> I often don't do it, but you know, anyway. I've derived satisfaction from other things too. But okay, I know that about myself. But just because I'm enjoying hiking in the mountains so much, or it gives me this kind of satisfaction, doesn't mean it's always pleasant. You know, you have to walk uphill. Sometimes that's actually pretty strenuous. You know, you feel tired. You have to deal with the weather. It's wet or cold. So it's not always present, uh, pleasant, but it's satisfying. So watch out for the difference. It's not like um, meditation is supposed to make you feel good. You know, if you take the words that I found, meditation is about feeling unapologetically present for me in this original opening that I experienced. It means unapologetically present also with what is difficult in my life, with what is unpleasant. So I'm not saying, oh, just swap mindfulness practice for playing in the water or forget about meditation, just go into the mountains. No, these practices, meditation, mindfulness, maybe some body practice, they have their specific, their specific power. But you develop your discipline, I'm suggesting today, you're developing your discipline by rooting your intention and the discipline that comes from that in satisfaction. Just going back to this um, experience that I had of unapologetic presence. Later, you know, I wrote, I wrote, I read in um, Suzuki Roshi's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, there's a phrase that hit me, sort of, you know, it's like, there's these phrases that jump out from texts. 
they, that's good to notice. You know, they have a certain significance for for you here for me. Uh, there's this phrase where he says, "The awareness that you are here right now is the ultimate fact." The awareness that you are here right now is the ultimate fact. You know, when I, when, okay, how can I say this? 25 years ago, when I started sitting, I could have read that sentence and said, sort of in a philosophical way, I could have said, uh, oh, yeah, you know, that, wow, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but it took, it took this initial experience of what I'm now calling being unapologetically present in my zazen to open up some kind of experiential, um, territory from which I could begin to understand the depth of a statement like the awareness that you are here right now is the ultimate fact. So from this initial satisfaction of like, wow, I can just sit here and not worry about everything, trying to analyze what to do, analyze myself, I can just be here with my own body and mind and feel unapologetically present. That's such a, that's such an inkling, such a feeling that's so little, you know, profound, but still kind of like just faint in comparison to my worrying mind that such a feeling can over decades of disciplined, you hear that word now in a, hopefully in a certain way, disciplined practice that such a feeling can flower into a profound insight like the awareness that I am here right now is the ultimate fact. That's where everything comes from. It's remarkable. So why am I saying this? I think I'm saying it because take... Take these, take these inklings, these feelings that you have about something in your life that is actually satisfying. Take, take it seriously. And, and let, and, and let that, let that, see, that taking this satisfaction seriously, see if this can become a practice that you allow to develop you. I mean, you allow the practice to develop you. Not, I am taking charge of my practice with an intention to solve certain problems in my life and control how that practice is happening. <laughs> I'm allowing a, a practice to take root in my life based in, these, in this satisfaction so that it can develop me.
you free the practice from needing to deliver results. It's like, you know, are all my problems solved because I'm sitting zazen? No. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the sentence that leads up to this phrase that, that I'm quoting, Suzuki Roshi, the awareness that you are here right now is the ultimate fact. The phrase that leads up to it says, when you are sitting with your problem, what is more real to you? You, uh, your problem, or you yourself? Ooh, what is more real to you? Your problem or you yourself? Well, that's the thing. When I myself, this awareness that I'm right here, becomes more real to me than my problem, then I, then I have a different relationship to the problem. It's okay to have the problem then. <clears throat> Okay, that's enough. Anyway, I don't have more. <laughs>